Hello my friends, it's the Remnant Warrior here on Corporate Criminals, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. It's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days. We are in the last days. Revelation, Revolution, the Antichrist, Angels, and the Abyss, End Times Apologetic Series, Volume by Dr. Dennis James Woods, narrated by Pastor Jeremy Anderson. Introduction. In January 2018, Newsweek released an article titled, Trump Will Start the End of the World, Claim Evangelicals Who Support Him. The title of this article is indicative of a prevailing mindset that many evangelicals and other Protestants have concerning fundamental beliefs of how the world will end. The article begins by asking the question, why do so many evangelicals support a man who clearly does not come close to living a life that reflects one who is a committed Christian? Trump made many campaign promises that were attractive to evangelicals such as the appointment of conservative judges, overturning Roe v. Wade, law and order, and border security. But the most important political agenda to evangelicals was America's support of Israel. The question is, why is the support of Israel so important to evangelicals? On May 14, 2018, at least two historic events took place in Jerusalem. The first was modern-day Israel's 70th national birthday, and secondly, the United States moved its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, proclaiming Jerusalem as Israel's capital. In attendance to this momentous occasion, were several prominent evangelical, political, and religious leaders from the United States and other nations. Many stated that the embassy move was historic and of great prophetic significance. In his address during the embassy ceremony, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech that made reference to Israel's historic temples. Netanyahu also recited the battle cry of the Israeli soldiers during the Six-Day War of 1967. 
the Temple Mount is in our hands. Throughout history, a temple has been central to Israel's identity. The first temple was Solomon's temple. The second, Zerubbabel's temple, in which centuries later, King Herod renovated and it became known as the Herodian temple. It was this same temple that Jesus referred to in his Olivet Discourse concerning the signs of the end. Speaking of the Herodian temple, Jesus stated, not one stone would be left upon the other. This prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus destroyed that temple and the city of Jerusalem. Since 70 AD, the Jews had been without a homeland and a temple. However, that all changed on May 14, 1948, when Israel was reestablished as a nation. For 70 years now, Israel has been back in their homeland. As some speculate, soon Israel will build a new temple. Central to end times prophetic fulfillment is the building of a third temple in Jerusalem. Prophecies such as Matthew 24:15, Daniel 9:27, and 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Revelation 11:1 and 2, and others require a temple to be present in the last days. It is this temple that the Antichrist will desecrate, triggering what is known as the Great Tribulation. The last three and a half years of a seven-year period generally characterized as the Tribulation Period. The Tribulation Period occurs at the end of this current age, culminating with the Battle of Armageddon and the return of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. A fundamental eschatological position held by many Christians, particularly those who are evangelical, is called the pre-tribulational rapture position, or the pre-trib rapture theory. In this theory, the temple will be built during the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. However, in the pre-trib rapture theory, the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation begins. Therefore, anything that gets Israel closer to that temple and seven-year period signals a soon-coming rapture. This, then, was one of the most important linchpins between Donald Trump and evangelicals, hence the title of the New York Times article, Trump will start the end of the world. Therefore, to evangelicals, Donald Trump is God's man. And to use Trump's own self-aggrandizing words, he is the chosen one. With key evangelicals in his ear, Trump began fulfilling agenda items important to evangelicals which compromise the majority of his base. On his own, Trump probably knew very little 
or could care less about end times Bible prophecy. Along with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in which the Kushner family are longtime friends of Netanyahu, Trump put forth an agenda to bring peace to the Middle East and cut the deal of the century in a peace treaty called the Abraham Accords. This got evangelical prophecy pundits juices flowing, especially when America moved its embassy to Jerusalem. The embassy move was perceived to be a huge step towards Israel building that long-awaited third temple. The closer we get to the temple, the closer we get to the rapture, is the logic. Therefore, even though Donald Trump was probably one of the most arrogant, immoral, lying, hate-stoking, dog-whistle-blowing, race-baiting, unconventional presidents America has ever had, and despite all of Trump's foul, bombastic antics, evangelicals nodded their head while holding their noses. But since he was God's man, who was going to bring about the events that led to the rapture? They all kept silent and back. But then comes the 2020 presidential election. Evangelical Christians and so-called prophets were so sure Trump would win. I received calls from Christian friends who were being lambasted by other Christians who chided any believer who was not voting for Donald Trump and saying that they were not a Christian. Trump is God's man, they insisted. They were positive and even prophesied time and time again that Trump would win. But that isn't what happened. Donald Trump was defeated. Evangelicals were stunned in a state of disbelief and some were even bewildered. How could God let this happen? However, the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with what they believed. They assumed their agenda and God's agenda were one and the same. But clearly, that was not the case. If the 2020 election results stumped the evangelicals, what do you think would happen when they learned that the pre-trip rapture theory itself is wrong? You see, most evangelicals have bought into the whole left-behind scenario, where the world is thrown into chaos after the rapture happens, before the tribulation begins. Therefore, all of the things that Jesus the Apostle Paul, John, and the Old Testament prophets foretold according to the pre-trib has nothing to do with the church because born-again believers will be raptured before that point. So what exactly is this pre-trib doctrine and what is it based upon? Why would the average Christian place all their eggs in a pre-trib basket Is it because they were all taught that the tribulation is a seven-year period where God would pour out his wrath upon the earth? Yes, I do believe that is part of it. However, before that seven-year time period, all born-again believers 
would be raptured away according to dispensational pre-trip theory, and thereby they would escape all the perils of this awful time period. But will there actually be a pre-trip rapture? Of course, they say, the rapture is a biblical fact. I completely agree with that point. However, the most important question we have to ask is when will the rapture occur? Will there be a pre-trib rapture? Unfortunately, the average Christian who believes in pre-trib does not understand on what this doctrine is actually based. They only repeat what they have heard their pastors and teachers say without studying it in any detail for themselves. They know all the talking points such as God wouldn't beat up his bride before he marries her or that the Holy Spirit and the church have to be removed from the earth before Antichrist can be revealed, or what comfort would there be if we were still here to be killed by the Antichrist? Certainly Christ wouldn't let us go through that, right? However, just as they discovered after the 2020 election, no one has the market cornered on what God is about to do. What many have not understood is that pre-tribulationism or dispensationalism is a speculative doctrine and, at best, an unproven theory. The most appealing aspect of it is that it presents the path of least resistance. In this position, the church is to be raptured before any of the events depicted in the book of Revelation after chapter 3 occur. However, one of the consequences of being pre-trib is that it can cause people to see end times prophecy as a secondary or either, or even a tertiary subject and instill false hope. It can cause you to back an immoral man as God's man if he appears to be causing Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. However, as ministers of the gospel, we should not encourage or promote the marginalization of Revelation which causes others not to study the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. From God's perspective, Revelation was so important that he gave a special blessing for anyone who would read and keep the things written in that book. God loved the church so much that he sent John 2,000 years into the future, whether in vision or in spirit, so we would know what would happen during the final days of this present age. But instead of heeding, we have marginalized its significance to the church and opted for a teaching that insists the prophecies of Revelation 
and other eschatological passages have nothing to do with the church, the very church to whom it was written. However, instead of heeding this divinely inspired revelation, we have opted for a man-made doctrine that in many cases cannot be backed by the scriptures. Free trib is big on theological concepts, but often comes up very, very short on explicit biblical text to back up its many assertions. So how and where did all of this start? And how have so many Christians brought into this teaching and what is this doctrine based upon? In the next chapter, we will cover the historical backdrop of just how pre-trib and dispensationalism came to America. Chapter 1. The Impact of John Nelson Darby During the 19th century, a trend developed in the United States that promoted non-denominationalism known as the Bible Church Movement. The chief proponent was an Anglican minister, John Nelson Darby who rejected the concepts of a state church while urging his followers to reject Christian denominations. Darby's view was controversial and radical for his time. His proposals included the separation from Christian denominations categorizing those organizations as apostate. In Darby's reasoning, he thought of the true church as being temporary and denominations as merely outward professions. This movement garnered the support of other influential ministers and associates of Darby, such as the revivalist Dwight L. Moody, who also resisted denominationalism and led many inner church crusades. Following in this trend, the historic Moody Memorial Church near downtown Chicago was one of the first non-denominational churches in the United States. After leaving the Church of England in 1831, Darby helped start a remarkably influential movement known as the Plymouth Brethren, a group that emphasized the study of eschatology and ecclesiology where he formulated much of his unique views on Bible prophecy. The Brethren Fellowship was an independent, non-denominational, evangelical movement who were dissatisfied with the formalism, clericalism, and spiritual dryness of many British churches in the early 19th century. Christians of various groups met for communion, prayer, and Bible teaching based on a simplistic New Testament pattern with centers in Dublin and Plymouth. Darby emphasized the concepts that organized Christianity was corrupt and therefore called for an ecclesiastical separation. Spawning from his feeling of ecclesiological pessimism was Darby's distinctive position concerning the interpretation of prophetic events that involved a perspective on two separate and distinct programs 
for the church and Israel. He promoted an interpretation of scripture that taught a secret and pre-tribulational rapture of the church. This new way of interpreting prophetic events of the Bible became known as dispensationalism. In Darby's view, God's plans were revealed through a series of covenants and coinciding dispensations, which were all foreshadows of the establishment of a messianic kingdom here on earth. However, in the fullness of times when the Son of God came, his own people and nation Israel rejected him. In response, God was forced to postpone the kingdom. He then turned away from Israel and created a new people for himself, consisting of Gentiles called the church. According to Darby's dispensational view, God only resumes his work with the nation and people of Israel after he finishes building the Gentile church, which abruptly ends at the rapture. Only then could the events depicted in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, such as the openings of the seven seals, the blowing of the seven trumpets, the revelation of the man of sin, and the consolidation of the Ten Horn Ten Nation Confederation and the issuance of the Mark of the Beast, the Bold Judgments, Armageddon, and Christ's Second Coming actually occur. His thousand-year reign on Earth, called the Millennium, occurs after the Tribulation period. However, probably the most innovative yet disruptive aspect of Darby's teaching was his view of the secret and pre-tribulational rapture. This aspect of Darbyism was not received by everyone, most notably members among the Plymouth Brethren, the group that he himself established. After a significant clash between one of the Plymouth Brethren, B.W. Newton, and Darby over the secret rapture, Darby propagated his views through prophetic conferences and Bible study groups. In the 1870s, during a series of preaching tours, Darby's dispensationalism spread throughout America. Darby's teaching influenced a number of evangelical pastors and teachers, including Dwight L. Moody, William E. Blackstone, James H. Brooks, James M. Gray, and probably the most influential of them all was Bible conference speaker, pastor, and a former Confederate soldier of the 7th Regiment of Tennessee named C.I. Schofield. Schofield was also influenced by James H. Brooks, one of the founders of the Niagara Bible Conferences, where dispensationalism was a favorite topic. Years after Darby's death, Schofield published his dispensational views in a widely distributed and immensely popular Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. In 1890, Schofield started a Bible correspondence course which 
He directed until 1914 when it was taken over by the Moody Bible Institute. Tens of thousands of students scattered over the world were indoctrinated with his dispensational ideas. The Schofield Reference Bible was published in 1909 by Oxford University Press, expanded in 1917, and revised in 1967. This Bible was the most important publication of the classic form of dispensationalism. It was through the Schofield Reference Bible that the pre-trib rapture theory became very popular and the preferred eschatological doctrine amongst fundamentalists and evangelicals. The Schofield Reference and Study Bible are still very popular to this day, but not as much as it was when it was released back in 1909. Other study Bibles, such as the Ryrie Study Bible and many others also promote dispensationalism. Another major influencer was Louis S. Schaefer, a Presbyterian minister and baritone soloist who sang for D.L. Moody during his famous conferences. In the fall of 1901, he met and became fascinated with Z.I. Schofield after hearing him teach. Schofield became Schaefer's mentor, and it was through that relationship with Schofield that Schaefer moved to New York and taught at Schofield's Bible Correspondence School. As Schaefer rose in prominence, the Bible Conference movement in 1924, he founded the Evangelical Theological College. In 1936, it was renamed Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary was soon recognized as one of the most prestigious seminaries teaching dispensational premillennialism and the pre-trib rapture doctrine in the entire country. After Schaefer's death in 1952, Dr. John Walvoord took over as chancellor in 1997, it was Dr. Walvoord that I contacted to identify doctrinal problems of the pre-tribulation theory. More on this later. Influential alumni of Dallas Theological Seminary include Hal Lindsey, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Ryrie, Dwight Pentecost, John Walvoord, J. Vernon McGee, Tony Evans, Zane Hodges, David Jeremiah, Andy Stanley, Robert Jeffries, Roy Zuck, Merrill Unger, Mark Hitchcock, Erwin Lutzer, Joseph Stowell, and many, many others. Though some scholars have searched for evidence in the writings of the early church fathers and others throughout the church history to find traces of a pre-trib rapture teaching, the dispensational and pre-trib rapture theory we know today was never found among the early church writings. It was systemized completely by Darby. 
but contributions to Darby's work came from other prominent scholars over time. In this author's opinion, the pre-trib rapture doctrine itself cannot be exclusively laid at the feet of Darby. However, the birth of dispensationalism can certainly be laid at his feet. To this day, the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine is the prevailing eschatological view among evangelicals, fundamentalists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and non-denomination Christians alike. This view is so passionately held that in many circles, if you teach anything other than pre-trib, you can be disfellowship or declared a heretic. In 1890, Darby published his own version of the New Testament called the Darby Translation. Its purpose in doing so was to make a translation for those who had no formal training in the original languages neither had, or neither had access to manuscripts and text. Darby's translation work was not intended to be read aloud. His work was, of course, for private study and personal use. The Darby translation is very rarely used by expositors, even expositors who are dispensational. Among the Darby translation critics were men like Charles Spurgeon, in the introduction, and sorry, this is chapter 2, setting the stage. In the introduction, a reference was made to a Newsweek article that said evangelicals see Trump as ushering in the end of the world. When Trump moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, as well as declared Jerusalem to be Israel's capital, believers saw this as a major step toward Israel building their third temple. Many believe that this temple will be built during Daniel's 70th week. However, when Trump lost the election, many evangelicals were stunned. They were forced to come to grips with the fact that they got it wrong about what they perceived to be Trump's role in fulfilling Bible prophecy. However, an even greater problem is looming. Most evangelicals are pre-trib. They believe that the entire, I say that again, the entire seven-year period called the Tribulation is synonymous with Daniel's 70th week and the Day of the Lord, where God's wrath is poured out on the entire world. Since the Bible teaches that the church is not appointed unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, this requires that the church would be raptured before this seven-year period begins. According to pre-trib theory, if Christians are still on the earth during these events, that would mean that they have entered into the day of the Lord and have also missed the rapture. During this Revelation Revolution series, we will test the validity of the seven-year Day of the Lord time frame, along with addressing many other problems with dispensational pre-tribulationism. It is my belief that the church will not be prepared 
for the most turbulent time in history. Millions of unsuspecting Christians are going to be caught flat-footed when prophesied events occur. Since the 1800s, believers have been taught pre-trib and promised that they were going to be raptured before the 70th week occurs. Are Christians setting up to be stunned once again? Have we seen this in history before? The Thessalonian Dilemma Before we delve into the mechanisms of pre-tribulationism, let's take a look at a church that was located in Macedon during the first century, a church to which Paul addressed two of his epistles. The place was Thessalonica, and the epistles were addressed to the Thessalonians. During this time, there was persecution of Christians at the church of Thessalonica. Paul addressed this fact in 2 Thessalonians where he states, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 As it were with many Christian assemblies during the first centuries, persecution was a way of life. People were coming to Christ amidst pagan cult societies that typically worshipped various idols, gods, and goddesses. There was even a succession of Roman emperors that declared themselves to be God, and whosoever would not bow down and worship them as a god met gruesome public executions. Ironically, Christians were even martyred for being an atheist because they refused to bow to the Roman emperor as lord. This is an excerpt from the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, bishop of the church of Smyrna. On his confessing that he was the proconsul, sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age and other similar things, according to their custom, such as, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheist. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hands towards them with groans, he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheist. Then the proconsul, urging him again, said, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Like Polycarp, countless Christian believers died in the arenas while thousands of people cheered on as gladiators and wild animals tore believers to pieces. 
They developed all sorts of evil death contraptions to inflict as much suffering as possible, all while the bloodthirsty crowds were entertained. This author highly recommends incorporating the reading of Fox's Book of Martyrs to Revelation Studies as an adjunct to gain insight as it relates to Christianity under persecution. Coming to grips with the persecution that historically accompanied Christians down through the centuries will help take the sting out of the idea of the persecution of the saints found throughout the book of Revelation. Because of the pre-trib teaching, instead of embracing the legacy of persecution of Christians and the suffering of Christ, somehow we have relegated that to something of history past and the so-called tribulation saints, that unfortunate group of those who are left behind. As a result, particularly here in America, the idea of a persecuted church is a completely foreign and unfathomable idea. As for the Thessalonians, their persecution was severe. But to make matters worse, apparently someone claimed to have apostolic authority and wrote a letter to the Thessalonians telling them that the persecution that they were undergoing was because they had missed the rapture and entered the day of the Lord. In response, this is what Paul wrote. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together unto him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the falling away occurs and the man of sin is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3 NIV In my illustration at the beginning of the chapter, Christians were panicking because they were taught that the signing of the seven-year covenants that starts Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year period that pre-trib teaches coincides with the day of the Lord. The illustration that I laid out is conceptually similar to the circumstances that occurred to the saints at Thessalonica. As the passage implies, someone had written a false letter claiming to be from Paul saying that the day of the Lord was already upon them. This caused serious problems for them leaving them shaken in mind and troubled, confused and gripped in fear. Paul had already taught them that they wouldn't go through the day of the Lord, the wrath of God. But now, because of the bogus letter, which they accepted to be authentic, they found themselves in the midst of what they mistakenly believed to be the day of the Lord. Just as the Thessalonians of old received the bogus letter as an official doctrinal position, modern-day Christians that adhere to pre-trib would also be in a similar circumstance, causing them to be shaken in mind, 
as they are confronted with being in that seven-year tribulation period that the pre-trib doctrine promised they would escape. They too would have their faith shaken, just as the Thessalonians of antiquity did. If they thought they were in Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year tribulation period, which they accept as the day of the Lord, certainly it would mean that they had missed the rapture. Therefore, finding themselves in the 70th week of Daniel, what hope would they have if they believed that they had missed their blessed hope? Erroneous resurrection doctrines were not uncommon during Paul's days. The Bible records there was another doctrine that was destroying people's faith. Paul had to write in 2 Timothy about the doctrine of Philetus and Hymen, excuse me, Hymenreus, that taught that the resurrection had occurred already, which overthrew the faith of the people. 2 Timothy 2.18 He had to address a similar doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15.12 which said there was no resurrection. Clearly, Paul tells us that without the hope of the resurrection, preaching, our faith, and this life is all in vain. The thought of missing the resurrection would be devastating to any generation of Christians, just as it was in Paul's day. What a reality check. Being in the midst of Daniel's 70th week and now realizing that they had been taught the wrong thing or had missed the rapture would result in overwhelming fear in the face of severe persecution. With the real possibility of death, modern Christians would be faced with the historic reality that many generations of Christians lived with on a daily basis. Many Christians will defect left and right just as the Bible says. There will be a falling away first. How many of those unsuspecting Christians who thought they would be raptured away would stand if their freedom was threatened? How many would remain faithful if their finances and resources were suddenly cut off? How many would hold on to Christ if their family members were incarcerated or even worse, executed? These are harsh realities that past Christians in the body of Christ live with every day of their lives. Although the Bible clearly teaches that the beast shall make war with the saints and overcome them, Daniel 7.21 and Revelation 13.6, pre-trib does some theological gymnastics and has created a whole other group of Christians who they claim are not part of the church but are some second-class group of believers that were summarily left behind. But is this actually the case? In the coming chapters of this book, we will be examining some major flaws of pre-tribulationism and dispensationalism. I guarantee you will never see pre-trib or the book of Revelation the same way again.